The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken, land, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Thank you, Josiah. Hello, everybody. Uh, Hope you've got great uh, plans for July 4th, uh, and uh, great to be with you uh, here in the heart of summer at Christ Presbyterian Church. So uh, I'll start with a little uh, anecdote from our family dinner time. This was several years ago when our two daughters were younger, and uh, I was praying uh, over the meal. Uh, We're having dinner together and thanking God for what he provided for us. And in the middle of my prayer, one of my daughters interrupted me and said, Dad, her eyes are open. And uh, my response was, Who said they should be closed? Who made that rule? We don't have a rule that you have to close your eyes when you pray. And second, how did you know that her eyes were open? And that proceeded uh, proceeded into uh, a short conversation about what it means to be in spiritual danger. One significant sign of being in Spiritual danger is that you are much more alarmed by other people's issues than you are by your own issues. There's an adult version of this. You could call it the grumpy saint. This is the person who can't help themselves. And they have a pattern, maybe a frequent pattern, maybe an occasional pattern, but a pat- pattern nonetheless of finding fault. But if you flip the conversation around and say, well, well, hey, now that you've, you know, gone after the speck in my eye, let, let me just share with you a little bit about how you're coming across. 
the response is to get prickly and defensive. And so there's a little bit of a double standard where I can call you out and share with you and tell you all the problems I have with your issues, but don't you dare do the same in the reverse. So that's a sign that you're actually in spiritual danger. That's a description of a Pharisee uh, in the Bible, uh, particularly a, a Pharisee gone bad. There were some good Pharisees, but the Pharisees gone bad are described pretty well in Luke 18:9. They trusted in themselves. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on other people with contempt. So, boy, if that describes you, run to Jesus fast. I'm going to tell you how to do that in the next few minutes. The sure sign that God loves you, on the other hand, is that God has a pattern of leading you from places like this of spiritual danger, characterized by pride and hubris and a judicious spirit, to places of humility, like the one that Isaiah is taken to by a vision that he receives of the Lord, where it's no longer, all these people have issues, oh, and by the way, I'm a sinner. It's the other way around now. Oh my goodness, I have more issues than I ever dreamed or imagined. And oh, by the way, I also live among a people who have unclean lips like me. That's actually a sign of spiritual health when, you, when your perspective is that you are the greatest contributor to the world's problems. And then other people also are contributors because everybody has sin and corruption and everything else. But your perspective, if you're a spiritually healthy person, is that, that other people actually have less to be concerned about, or they're, they're, there's less to be concerned about in terms of other people's issues than you ought to be concerned about your own. And so, you know, you see this coming out in Isaiah when he says, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, and so on. And so, what I want to do is talk about for the next few minutes what a transforming encounter with God really is. And uh, they're, they're basically three features of an authentic, transforming encounter with God. One is that your foundations get shaken. Second, you receive a healing touch. And finally, you eagerly surrender. Okay, so, so let's start with uh, this. Your foundations will get shaken. If you meet God, you are going to be shaken. You are going to experience disorientation, disruption. You'll be thrown off your center. It's going to happen, and it's probably going to happen several times over the course of your life. You know, Isaiah, the great prophet, sees the Lord and the foundations are shaking. It's like an earthquake. And he, he says, woe is me, I am unclean. And, and, and so, here's what's going on here. He gets one little bitty glimpse of God, just one. And all of a sudden, all bets are off. Everything that once seemed beautiful to him is now hideous in comparison to what he's just seen. Everything that once seemed big to him is now very small in comparison to the God that he's just witnessed. Everything that once seemed strong to him is now incredibly weak and frail in comparison to the God that he's just witnessed. And, and so, how great is God? He is so great that, that, that he will have even the same effect on a seraph, which is, which is a gorgeous superhuman, morally perfect being. The seraphs, uh, their name means fiery ones. They have six wings instead of two, which means they're really, really strong. And they're made of fire, which means they're, they're, they're glorious and gorgeous. 
And yet, even these angels, we're told in the second verse, are covering their feet, and they're also covering their faces. I mean, what, what are we communicating when we cover our faces, when we hide our eyes? So Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the French philosopher, wrote this book called Being and Nothingness. He's an existentialist philosopher in the school of Camus and Nietzsche and the others. And he wrote this chapter in, in Being and Nothingness called The Look. And basically the thesis of that chapter is hell, the description of hell is this, to be looked at. When somebody stares at you, doesn't break eye contact, that is hell, according to Sartre. And that's why we look away. That's why we, we have such a hard time with, with sustained eye contact. And so we have even angels breaking eye contact when they get a vision of God, just a glimpse of it. But Isaiah, as a creature who has issues, is completely knocked off of his center. He says, I saw the Lord, and my immediate impulse was to cry out, woe is me, I'm lost, my lips are unclean, and I live among a people who also have unclean lips like mine. Now, this man is actually the most devout person in all of Israel. It's not like he's a criminal or anything. Like he's the most devout person in all of Israel, and he's suddenly undone by how corrupt he feels in comparison to the Lord. You're going to have a different experience when you start comparing your level of corruption with God's perfect holiness than you are when you, you just kind of go tit for tat between you and somebody else's corruption, right? Like, you, you will not get a sense of actually where your standing is as, as an upright person by just comparing yourself to other people. As soon as you get a glimpse of God, that's when reality sets in. What's significant here especially, too, is that he doesn't ha say, I have unclean feet or unclean hair. He says, I have unclean lips. And for a prophet, for a preacher, let me tell you, we get nowhere without our lips. Our career depends on our lips. Our, our influence depends on our lips. Our ability to provide depends on our lips. For a prophet, your lips are your pride and joy in the same way that for a sprinter, your legs are your pride and joy, or for a guitarist or a surgeon, your fingers are your pride and joy, or for an academic, your brain, or for a CrossFit trainer, your biceps. Without them, you have to pack it up and look for a different career path or just retire and disappear. This, just a few moments ago, was his greatest asset. Now he's seeing it as a liability. Unclean lips, why? Because my foundations have been shaken by the Lord. It's the ancient Hebrew version of on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Everything else is sinking sand. And you don't have to be religious to understand what it means to, to be in the presence of something or someone that is superlative, right? You know, I used to think I was a good basketball player. I actually won awards and stuff, did really well in high school. Until my first day of playing college basketball, which also became my last day of playing college basketball. Because I realized, oh my goodness, the bar is so much 
higher than I am. And I even went to a small university with a mediocre basketball program among small universities. It knocked me down a peg or two. I used to think I was a really good preacher until I shared a pulpit for five years with Tim Keller. I used to think that I was a good husband and father until I met Bob Bradshaw, who is our executive director and also an exemplary family man. Others, it might be music. Maybe you came here to Nashville because your, your ability to produce or perform music was your pride and joy. And then, you know, sometime in your first month, you, you go, you know, out for, for a meal and, and, and a beer, and there's karaoke at the place where you go, and, and somebody gets up and does karaoke, and you're like, oh my goodness, they, they sound like Carrie Underwood. Like, they, there's no way I'll make it in this town. I can't even measure up to Nashville karaoke, let alone get to the Ryman or the, the Opry or to Opryland or, you know, you used to think you were good looking and then you saw what Beyonce looks like or you used to think that you were generous and then somebody told you about how C.S. Lewis gave away 90% of his income and lived a simple life. And then you started to feel like Scrooge. Superlative people are incredibly inspiring and they're also incredibly intimidating. If we feel intimidated by superlative people, why on earth do we never feel intimidated by God? Who is holy, 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 who is a consuming fire, who is a lion, who's coming to judge the living and the dead. Every time in the Bible that somebody gets a glimpse of God, it hits him like a wrecking ball. And there's a man in, in uh, the book of Judges, his name is Manoah. It's tucked away, just a handful of verses. But th this is Manoah's legacy. He and his wife get a glimpse, just a glimpse of God. And on the basis of that glimpse, he turns to his wife and he says, we need to prepare to die because we've seen the Lord. Or there's Job, who, like Isaiah, is the most virtuous person in the world by God's assessment. Have you considered my servant Job, who fears God and shuns evil? There's no one like him. Job, like Isaiah, is a devout man, publicly and privately devout. And at one point, Job says to God, my eyes have now seen you, and I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Or Peter the apostle, he preaches, he preaches you know, the, these two, you know, you know these, these, all these sermons in, uh, in the book of Acts and writes these two letters that, were, that are now part of Scripture. So he just encounters Jesus teaching a few people some stuff. And after Jesus is done teaching, Peter says, please go away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. I, I can't abide your presence now that I, I see even a small glimpse, a little bitty bit of who you are and what you're like. Or David, the, the, the king, the man after God's own heart who, who gave us about 50% of the Psalms about whom Jesus said, he is a man after my own heart. David, in the eighth Psalm, 
praise, Lord, when I consider your heavens, when I, when I consider your creative acts, how you've made heaven and earth and everything in it, what is man that you should have any interest in him or that you should desire him at all? Who am I? Woe is me. See, the, the first sign that you have had a true encounter with God is that your self-esteem has been ruined. forever. It's not that God wants to give you an esteem less than yourself. He wants to give you an esteem a whole lot bigger than yourself. And that's where we get the healing touch. The defeated prophet prepares to die on the basis of this vision that he's had of the three times holy God. And then the seraph, the angel, the fiery, beautiful, glorious one, comes to Isaiah with a hot coal from the altar. I mean, think about like bricks on a barbecue, like hot. Touches his mouth, not to injure him, not to scald him, not to give him a scar, but to heal him, to refine him, and ultimately to send him. Touches his mouth. Isn't, isn't that just like God, when he comes to you for healing, to go straight to the greatest source of your shame? Starts there, the thing you're most embarrassed and humiliated by, that your biggest regrets, the, the most ominous negative verdicts that you're carrying around in your head and heart about you. He goes straight for the jugular on those things first to reverse those verdicts and to say to you in the same way that the angel said to Isaiah, your guilt is atoned for. Your sin is forgiven. See, this is, the, this is the wild paradoxical thing. It is the fear of God that positions us to never be afraid of God again. When we put gravity and weight into his, the combination of his holiness and his grace, there's nothing that we legitimately have to ever fear again, including him. So this phrase, the train of God's robe, there's a parallel translation to the word train from the Hebrew word, and it's the word hem. Where else in the Bible do we read about a hem? It's in the eighth chapter of Luke, where there's a, a woman who has uh, been bleeding for years. Maybe she's a hemophiliac, maybe her menstrual cycle has been, you know, way off for, for many years. But, but what we do know is that she's a chronic bleeder, and it says that she's depleted all of her life savings going from one doctor to the next, one medical and treatment strategy to the next, and, and nothing has helped her. And so, so as a last ditch, she runs into the crowd, tries to find Jesus, and reaches out and, and wants to touch, tries to touch him. And the, the best she can do is just to get a little tiny touch of the hem of his garment, kind of like the, the hem of my pants, just a little bit of cloth that, that also is making contact with Jesus, and it heals her for the rest of her life. It heals her completely, instantaneously. What all the doctors couldn't do, what, what all the things that she was trying to medicate herself with in the past, in the same way that, that, that we try to medicate our, our control urges with money, or in the ways that we try to medicate our loneliness urges with porn, or, or the way that we try to medicate you know, any other sadness or sickness or sorrow in our lives with something that 
ultimately will actually make it worse instead of better. She's falling short of healing until she touches the garment of her Lord. Now, Isaiah, when this happens to him, when this healing touch happens to him, he suddenly moved to open confession. His defenses are down, and he's outing himself. Not to draw attention to himself, he's actually, he actually is becoming more shy about himself and more boastful about the Lord. This, this passage is not the story of Isaiah per se in which God is a supporting actor. It's the other way around where the story is about God and his mercy and kindness and generosity and holiness and consuming fire, and his lamb-likeness, his lion-likeness, and so on. It's all about God and Isaiah as a supporting actor. And part of the way that, that, that Isaiah plays his part in the story is by taking the lead, by being what we call a chief repenter. His defenses go down. Don't care about my reputation anymore. My lips, they're not my identity anymore. It's remarkable to me. Is it remarkable to you too? It's remarkable to me in the Bible how the most devout, greatest saints are so open, so transparent with their weakness. You know, you got Isaiah here with his lips. It's also the book of Jonah. So you ever read the book of Jonah? Four chapters about an idiot, okay? This guy, he's mean. You talk about a grumpy saint. He's grumpy. He's judgmental, hateful, spiteful, vindictive. Hates the grace of God for other people. Demands the grace of God for himself. Jerk for Jesus. Who wrote Jonah? Jonah. How about that? Or David, when he, when he pens his masterful confession of sin in the 51st Psalm, you know, have mercy on me, O God, according to your failing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression, cleanse me from my sins, you know, let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones you've crushed rejoice. That prayer also has a preface. The Psalm of David, when he went in to Bathsheba. David went into Bathsheba because David, the king, the man with power, saw her, and it says, he says it saw her and he took her. There was no consent there. He abused his power and exploited her. The wife, it just so happens, of one of his best friends. And he's just outs himself and makes all of this public for the rest of us, for history. And here, here's, you want to know how David, or how, how David got touched? Who did David marry after that incident? Bathsheba. Can you imagine the forgiveness that that woman had to, had to, had to work through in her heart in order to become this man's wife? responsible for her husband's death, came and took her when, when, when she wasn't rightfully his to take. And then, to add another healing touch to the story, God gives them a son and says, here's what his name's going to be, Solomon, shalom, peace, flourishing. Out of your corruption, I am going to bring about flourishing into the world. 
or the Apostle Paul, for that matter, Romans chapter 7, he openly talks about his ongoing struggle with coveting. In 1 Timothy 1, he credentials himself in two ways. Number one, he says, I'm the greatest recipient of mercy in the history of the world. Nobody needs mercy more than I do from God, and nobody is aware of the mercy of God like I am. Why? Because the other thing, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an aggressor. He's moved. They're all moved to open confession. That's a sign of spiritual health. And here's the thing about the healing touch from God. If you've been healed by God, it's not that he's jacked up your self-esteem. It's that he's crushed your pride. But in crushing your pride, he, he doesn't take you to, to the other side of the pendulum to self-loathing. Because God, here are two things that God cannot abide with respect to his children. He cannot abide our pride. He can't stand it. And he can't stand our self-loathing. He, he both humbles us out of our pride and lifts us out of our shame. He says, woe to me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips. You can almost start feeling him, you know, maybe saying a little bit too much about how, it's almost like he's like saying, okay, my identity used to be a preacher, now my identity is a rotten, good for nothing. I had a similar, not quite as traumatic experience a couple of years ago before Easter. I've shared this with some of you, where, where basically I sinned. In a date with my wife, I sinned against somebody with my lips. And she grabs my hand and she says, you know, you shouldn't have said those words about this person. Shouldn't have said those to me. You know that, right? And, and that kind of triggered a, a bit of an emotional and spiritual crisis in me. I'm like, oh my goodness. I preach against gossip all the time. I compare it to pornography because it's just another way of objectifying somebody, getting a cheap thrill, and making no commitment to them. Do I belong? I asked her, I said, do you think I'm a fraud? First, do you think I'm a fraud? And, and second, do you think I ought to find a substitute preacher for Easter, which is in three days? And she says to me, no, what you need to do is preach now to yourself what you've been preaching to the rest of us for over 20 years. And I said, pray tell, what is that? And she says, well, it's, it's what Jack Miller first said, cheer up because you are worse than you think. And God's love for you is infinitely greater than you ever dared to hope. What I needed was not a new career path. What I needed was the hem of Jesus' garment. What I needed was to hear the voice, behold, look, your sin, it's there. It's real, it's been forgiven, and it's been atoned for. It's covered. You fear God, you'll never have to be afraid of anything, including God. Turns out, doesn't it, that the only offering that we give to God that, that, that he actually accepts with gladness is empty hands. You bring your history, you bring your regrets, you bring you know, the things that you could rewind time for and redo them. God says, bring them all, and I'll bring the healing touch. I, I love that lyric from Michael Card's song, Jubilee, where he says, to be so completely guilty and given over to despair and to look into your judge's face 
and see a Savior there. He surprises us, he surprises us with, 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 with a face that looks very different than the one we expect that we will see. We, we expect when, when, when we're found out, when our issues are exposed before God, we expect a frowning countenance from God, right? I'm so disappointed in you. I so regret that my son died for you. No. It's tenderness that you get from him. It's Isaiah 62, 5 that you get from him. As the bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so the Lord your God rejoices in you. Nothing can change that. And on the basis of that, we get eager surrender. You know, God says to Isaiah, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God says, well, wait, I haven't given you the job description yet. So here's the job description. Verses 9 and following, basically, for the rest of your life, you're going to preach to people who won't listen. You'll get no applause. You'll have no friends. Just people who will be bored with your message, cynical about your God, and hostile toward you. You'll be despised. You'll be rejected. People will esteem you not. You won't get invitations to dinner parties. You will be a pariah. People who just want to keep their distance from you. You know, you, you, you know you, you, I want you to preach, but whether you preach in a sanctuary or a cemetery, you're going to get the same response. Isaiah, in the eyes of his contemporary, was a complete and utter failure. Isaiah did not walk back his here am I, send me, after he got the job description. He says, you know, whatever, look, <sighs> amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You know, here am I, send me. Somebody's, if somebody's got to do this to bring glory to you, I will. But he became a failure, or did he? Because here we are, thousands of years later, talking about him, trying to work through together how to organize our lives around this vision that he wrote. Here we are, esteeming his book. You know, another pastor in Nashville asked me what we're preaching through in our, you know, three locations of Christ Pres this summer. And I said, we're, we're doing a series in Isaiah. It's sort of a mini-series. And he said, oh, Isaiah, so addictive, so addictive. And it's true. I mean, there's never been a poet like Isaiah. There, there, there's never been somebody, maybe other than David who, and, and Jesus, of course, who, who understands the, the complexity of human emotion and human experience like Isaiah. There's never been a person except maybe King David who, who understood that, that God is beautiful in all of his attributes, whether we're talking about his lion-like or his lamb-like, his fierce or his tender attributes. In the New Testament, he's the most quoted of all the prophets. Of course, Handel's Messiah is based upon his prophecy. And all over the world, people are not naming their sons after Uzziah, the prosperous king. They're naming their sons after Isaiah, the persecuted prophet. And of course, you've got Jesus all over this as well. Regarded as a professional failure, check. No home, no money etc. Dishonored prophet, check, came to his own and his own did not receive him. On the cross, the foundations of the earth were shaken. There was an actual earthquake when Jesus was being crucified. He was the king who died. You know, Uzziah's death was the end of prosperity and was the end of flourishing for Israel. Jesus's death was the beginning of our prosperity and flourishing. And now this prophet and king 
is also our priest who says to us, here is a table, and at this table, I'm going to touch your lips with some bread and with a cup in order to heal you. So as I pray, I want to just, um, I guess, share with you a, a cultural gift that the Japanese, the Japanese culture has given to us that we ought to understand. And it is that when, when a Japanese person receives a gift, when somebody gives a gift to a Japanese person, their response is, we say thank you. A Japanese person says, I'm sorry. It's just another way of saying I'm not worthy and I'm so grateful for this. That's precisely what this table in front of us is. It, it, it's a gift that beckons us to say, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And with, with just as much conviction to say, thank you. Body and the blood of Christ given for you. What could be better than this? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will shake our foundations to help us pour contempt on our pride. I pray that right on the heels of that, right on the train of that, right on the hem of that, you would grant us your healing touch to lift us out of any self-loathing that your humbling might tempt in us. And then, Father, give us hearts of eager surrender. We're not here to play church. We're not here to be sentimental. We're not here to grow our self-esteem. Self-esteem is much too small a thing. It's much too small a vision. You are not here to give us self-esteem. You're here to give us an esteem that's so much greater than ourselves. And that is that just as the bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so you rejoice over us. We're sorry. Thank you. Amen.